You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, a great deal of attention was given to a personal view published in the BMJ, saying now was the time to start paying people to donate kidneys. We'll hear from the author of that article how she thinks that process might work. I think you have to take the starting point totally from the system that exists now for genetically related emotionally connected, even stranger donations that we're permitting now. But before that, an analysis in this week's BMJ sets out the problem of TB infection in the UK. One of the initiatives mentioned in it is the Mobile TB Unit in London, who screen and treat the homeless population. Harriet Vickers joined them in their busy clinic in a van to find out more. Hi, I'm Al Storey. I'm a consultant nurse and a clinical lead of Find and Treat, which is a London mobile street outreach service for homeless people and people with drug and alcohol problems. Uh, we're parked here outside the Dello Day Centre in East London. Um, this is a large day centre that provides a variety of services for people who are homeless. And we come here with the mobile x-ray screening unit and we offer a chest x-ray to everyone in the centre and with a lot of support and help from the staff and from the local outreach teams here uh, from Barcelona Royal London um, we have a very good uptake. And, and tell me what are the, the other groups that you tried to target with this intervention? When we first started screening in London in 2005 we were also screening some other groups in the community um, and we were screening in prisons. Uh, we looked at the data from the first two years of the service and it was quite clear that the rates in homeless people and amongst people with drug and alcohol problems were orders of magnitude higher and it wasn't worth uh, providing uh, mobile outreach radiography to population groups who have lower rates of TB and are well plugged into services. That said, we never went into a prison um, in London and didn't find a case of active TB but because of the very limited capacity of the, the service with just one van the turnover in the prison system was so high we were actually only reaching just a small fraction of those people who were potentially eligible so in consequence to that the Department of Health decided they would fund the installation of static digital radiology machines and will soon be offering a chest x-ray to all new receptions within the prison system the, the, the problem for us is that uh, the clinical presentation of tuberculosis is perfectly masked by lifestyle factors. Um, uh, a symptom screening questionnaire among the population group that we work with would be, would be uh, utterly useless. A very high proportion of the clients that we work with have got a cough, they experience sweats because of substance misuse issues, um, they are quite used to losing weight etc and they generally feel pretty tired. So they don't spot the symptoms and the consequences to that are very delayed presentation. Um, this is further compounded by the fact that they have a high rate of respiratory forms of TB, infectious forms of TB, and they're in a perfect environment to transmit that disease to other people. If we work on the assumption that people who are unwell are going to seek help and people who have been diagnosed with TB are going to take treatment, then the service is not going to meet the needs of this client group. Our service is designed around the assumption that we need to go to you, we need to actively case find in this population. But also our service is built on the assumption that 
um, taking a six-month course of TB treatment, a minimum of a six-month course of TB treatment, taking that course of treatment is, uh, is, is not an easy is not an easy task. And because of the public health implications of the disease, we um, think that the service should shoulder some responsibility to support people to complete that treatment. Okay. And um, we're on the van now, as you can probably hear in the background. So you just want to talk us through what you can clinically do here. Yeah, sure. We have a small waiting area here, which we're sitting in, uh, with a desk where people would step onto the van and give their just their first name, second name, date of birth. They then go over, step inside the cubicle, zap, um, and by the time they're stepping out of the cubicle, we've got the image there and then on the screen on a diagnostic standard monitor, and the uh, reporting radiographer, trained reporting radiographer, is able to interpret the image there and then on the spot. And when we get an abnormal X-ray, we're then able to refer that person there and then on the spot. We also harvest sputum samples on people um, and uh, on the pavement, and. Um, we would hope that we could get uh, a smear microscopy turned around within a couple of hours. So the person then is escorted there and then directly to um, to a, a local TB service. So how many people can you see in, say, a year? And, and do you know what are your rates of detection and um, also treatment adherence? Sure. Um, so we're screening between eight and 10,000 people every year in every single London borough. Um, on average session, we screen between 40 or 50 people. Um, we do a lot of out-of-hours work, whatever it takes for the client group, really. We continue to find a rate of active TB of around 300 per 100,000 in this population group. If you were to look at the rate of pulmonary TB in London amongst the UK-born population for the last sort of five, six years or so, that's about seven per 100,000. If you look at the uh, rate of TB pulmonary TB in the foreign-born population, and that works out about 50 per 100,000. Um, we're very fortunate to have been uh, um, independently evaluated by uh, um, a highly expert group um, uh, from the Health Protection Agency, and um, they have uh, been able to demonstrate that you know, what we do is not only highly cost-effective, it's, you know, it's potentially cost-saving. And as far as our work's concerned, early case detection um, means that we prevent future cases who in turn prevent future cases so the you know the knock-on benefits of finding tuberculosis early particularly the very expensive drug resistant forms of disease that we're, 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 we're seeing an increase of now I mean the benefits of what we do today will be realized in in years to come and, and what you do in, in terms of follow-up, so it's difficult enough to get anyone to, to adhere to an entire programme, especially when you've got people homeless who perhaps disenfranchised from the health system anyway and have, really do have priorities other than their health. So how do you get them to finish the course? Well, the, the secret is to provide them with um, a, a package of support that, 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 that is meaningful to them and... Uh, um, their daily priorities are around safety and around food and around shelter. So unless we provide that sort of package of health and social support, um, it's unrealistic to expect people to be able to, to, be able to complete a six-month course of TB treatment. Part of the care is DOT, directly observed therapy. Um, that is simply getting someone who's responsible to observe every single dose being ingested. Um, 
we can work with a variety of different partners in the community who can support DOT, but uh, where necessary we'll actually outreach into the street and actually take the medication on a daily basis or three times a week to, uh, to, to people. Um, if people are extremely chaotic, it's, it's usually um, necessary to try and find some appropriate accommodation for them. Trying to treat people with tuberculosis on the street is a huge challenge, it's difficult. Quite a high proportion of our workload is associated with trying to relocate and re-engage in treatment services patients who've started but not completed a course of TB treatment. Um, to date, we've been asked to find just under 250 people with active TB who've started TB treatment but they're not completed. And, um, in fact, about 75% of the people we've been asked to relocate, we've been able to uh, we've been able to find them and uh, motivate them to get back into treatment services. And and who do you link up with um, with this service? Absolutely. I mean, tuberculosis control can only be achieved through partnership working you know, in the community and you know we're very fortunate to work alongside a lot of excellent services for this client group in London um, by being able to work in partnership with key workers in hostels with people in the day centres uh, with a lot of the street outreach teams with some of the excellent community pharmacists and local specialist GP practices you know there's there's quite a um, uh, a, 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 a resource of people out there in London who we can work together to actually support people to take TB treatment. The services, the hospital-based services, don't need to work in isolation or expect people to just come to hospital. They they need to work in partnership with the community. Al Story talking to Harriet Vickers there. Now, earlier this week, Sue Rabbit Roth from Dundee University Medical School wrote a personal view in the BMJ saying now was the time to start a trial of paid-for kidney donation. It's garnered a great deal of attention and controversy in the UK press, and the ethical issues surrounding it have been discussed at length, not least in the BMJ. So instead, I spoke to Sue about how she thought a financially remunerative system of donation might look. What I'd really like to get from you is, if we take the position a priori that we should pay for uh, donations. How would that work? How, as a market, would that work? I mean, for a start, who do you think would have to um, coordinate and regulate it? Well, the first point I'd like to make is that it's not just me and there are several other writers in the medical world who are saying, let's give it a try. So it should be trialled. And what we're looking for is the people to whom this is acceptable who might want to work with the transplant community in this way, in a way that people are not working through purely uh, altruistic, non-incentivized contributions. So Mm. how would it work? I think you have to take the starting point totally from the system that exists now for genetic-related emotionally connected, even stranger donations that we're permitting now. We have a system in place whereby when it becomes necessary for A to make a donation to B, the person A is thoroughly screened and prepped and prepared. In the Human Tissue Act, if it's a genetic relationship that is between the two parties um, or a close emotional friendship, spousal, whatever relationship, the Evaluation is psychological and then all the medical workups. In the Human Tissue Act, which made for the first time 
the possibility of stranger donation, what we call altruistic donation, there is psychiatric evaluation rather than psychological evaluation, plus, of course, the whole medical workup. And in all situations, the person is thoroughly counselled, has many meetings with um, the medical staff throughout the preparation period and is able to withdraw right up to the moment of anaesthesia. So that we have a functioning system which we think is morally good, ethically sound. We very much encourage people to give within the family, to give to their friends, even when encouraging these altruistic stranger donations. We have a fine medical system and everything would just exist as, as it does now medically and psychologically, psychiatrically. The difference would be that there would be a pool of money made available uh, to fund the £28,000 payment that I'm suggesting. In principle, it could come out of the present NHS budget and save the NHS money. The cost of dialysis is a great burden on the NHS as well as being a burden on the patient. And the consistent calculations in America, Australia and Britain is that transplantation at £28,000 or US dollars would pay for itself within a year to 18 months. Okay. So that cash would be NHS, which gets around um, some concerns that have been raised about making this, you know, only for the elite, only for those who could pay. As has been pointed out by others, um, £28,000 is a lot of money, but more money to those who are less well off, obviously. Do you think it's an issue that the people who would be donating would be from the lower socioeconomic groups? I'm not saying that millionaires are ever going to do this for £28,000. I am saying the rest of us might be interested. £28,000 is the average annual income in Britain at the moment. It's very close to the figure that you would get if you had your kidney kicked out in a criminal injury incident and you went to the Criminal Injury Compensation Board. They would give you 22500 and it speaks to a lot of people, as I have found in discussions in the last few days. There are not just poor people out there who are strapped for money at the moment. There are people who thought of themselves as middle class who've just incurred twenty, thirty thousand pounds in student loans and other commitments and find a very flat job market. How would you prevent any sort of coercion? Um, well, I sat on ULTRA, the Unrelated Live Transplant Regulatory Authority, in the last three or four years of its life, and I sat on about 200 cases where people who are not genetically related had to apply to ULTRA for permission to donate to a spouse or to a close friend or whatever. And they had to establish their motivation. So there is a long-standing scrutinary process, which I'm saying is involved in the psychological and psychiatric workup. Um, And the medics are quite astute at seeing people under pressure. And if we do it now, and if we maintain the same quality of scrutiny and support for people who do want to withdraw, we should be able to catch any malpractice. Basically, I just like to emphasize that my argument starts from where we're at, not where the unregulated, atrocious organ trade is. 
we, we mustn't be misled by all the bad deeds that are going on in the world. We have a wonderful system in Britain. We encourage people to do it ethically, morally, spiritually. We encourage people to do it. All I'm saying is, unfortunately, it's not enough, given the demand, the drivers, etc., and given, apparently, the lack of actual motivation of people to convert from ticking a box onto an organ register to actually doing the deed when the time comes, that why not trial, as the BMJ has called for, a real test opportunity, as we have done with the altruistic stranger donations in the last couple of years, and see what the uptake is. If 80% of the British population doesn't want to do it, fine. But if 20% does, they should maybe be given opportunity to work through this in a very carefully managed and monitored way. End of sermon. Sue Rabbit-Roth there. That's all for this week. Next week, Jeff Lohm, Head of Mission at the International Committee of the Red Cross, will join us to talk about their new campaign, It's a Matter of Life and Death, about continuity of care during armed conflict and other violent situations. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.